Uh, Our reading this morning is in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and it's in verse 12 we're going to begin. John's Gospel, chapter 2 and verse 12. And from time to time, we have some of our uh, outreach workers and, and mission workers who read this for us. So on the screen, we're going to have Rosie and Mitch who are doing cross-cultural work in Glasgow. So they're going to read for us John 2, verse 12 and following. The reading is taken from John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear a witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. And we thank Mitch and Rosie for uh, recording that for us. Let's, Let's pray before we come to that word. So today, as we continue our studies in John's Gospel, we're looking at cleansing the temple, cleansing the temple. Over the past 30, 40 years or so, a lot of life has changed. A lot of things have changed. And there is a a sense in which we are living within a cultural revolution, and it's just whenever you're living in it, you don't recognize the changes that are happening and how revolutionary it is. I mean, I remember 40 years ago when I was, uh, that's the last century, uh, 40, 45 years ago when I was working as a solicitor, starting working as a solicitor uh, in, the, in the office pool, as it were, with all the, the secretaries, you went in, and although a few had electric typewriters, quite a few had the old typewriters, you know, it was a very noisy place, click, 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 and uh, you would hardly see a typewriter now. Typewriters now are kind of museum pieces. In those days, uh, everything had to be done by, by letter. If it was a really urgent piece of information, you used the fax machine, and that was fun. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't work. 
Uh, and nowadays, it's all done by email. Now, occasionally, you get letters and, and so on, but so much business, so much is done by email or by texting or by WhatsApp or whatever. It's getting to the stage now where, where people, even, even if they're, they're moving into a new house, they'll maybe not even bother with a landline because they're working off their mobiles. Mobile phones, uh, again, 40 years ago, they were just about starting to come in, but you know, you had to have a lot of money to have one. And if you carried one around, it was a bit like carrying a brick. Uh, but now, you know, they're very slim. There's more technology. We're told there's more technology in a smartphone than was involved in uh, landing the first rocket on the moon. There's more technology in your pocket than was involved in landing the first rocket on the moon. And nowadays, people hardly use the landlines. I mean, when my landline goes, it's, it's usually one of three kinds of people. It's usually my parents, or scammers, or the undertaker. Those are the, the three. When my phone goes, it's most likely to be one of those three. A lot of folks now, they're, they're not even using landline. We are in the middle of a digital revolution. And that's why sometimes we're feeling anxious, and sometimes why we're, we're feeling fearful, and sometimes we're uncertain of what's happening tomorrow, because life and the world is changing so quickly around us. We are living in a communications and lifestyle revolution. In fact, it's a, it is a revolution every bit as big as the industrial revolution. And yet, when you're in this, sometimes you don't realize the, the significance of it. Now, I, I think a lot about these kind of revolutions and cultural revolutions every time I read the Gospels, and particularly the Gospel of John, because the people who are going through these incidents, especially in the early chapters of John, don't realize they are going through a spiritual revolution. They don't actually grasp it. They don't see it, maybe because they're too close to it. Last week I said that what John does in this gospel is to take various incidents and narratives of Jesus, and he uses them to present to us signs of life, signs that he is unique. There is absolutely no one else in the world who is like Jesus. And so here uh, we have another of these major cultural institutions that Jesus is going to change and speak into. Last week, we looked at a wedding, a major cultural event. We saw that when the wine ran out, Jesus was able to provide new wine, in fact, the best wine. He, if you like, is the, the bridegroom who doesn't let us down. The bridegroom and his family let the, the other folks down. They, they ran out of wine. But Jesus is the new bridegroom. And if you know your Bibles well, you will know that in Revelation, there is a wedding feast, and the groom, the bridegroom is Jesus, and the bride, if you like, is the church, and there's kind of this uniting of Jesus and the church, and we, were, we are with Him forever. There's a, a feast forever, if you like. This is the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, as we move into the rest of this chapter, we see John is making pretty much the same point, but he's, he's using a different event, a different institution. And here the institution is the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was the most important institution of Judaism. It represented the presence of God among His people. It represented the place where sacrifices were made to atone or cover or pay for sin. And as well as this, it was the headquarters of the priesthood. 
The temple was the center of Jewish political, legal, and even economic power. It was the beating heart of Judaism. Thirty-seven years after Jesus' resurrection, the temple was destroyed. Today, if you go to Jerusalem and you go to the Western Wall, or what is sometimes called the Wailing Wall, you will see many Jews gathering and praying and putting prayers into the crevices in the stones. There's only this portion of the wall that you can see, which, which is kind of the remnant of that great temple that was built in Herod's time. Huge, huge stones, an amazing edifice. What must the, the temple have actually been like? And there is this longing, there is this, this longing within the Jewish nation for the temple to be rebuilt, for God's glory to return, His presence to be there. And so here in chapter 2, John brings us to this temple. Now, I've said that uh, John carefully arranges his material to make his point, and we, and we see that here. Uh, the synoptic gospels actually have the cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry, whereas John places it at the beginning. Now, the commentators divide into two camps. Uh, some say there were two cleansings. There was a cleansing at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and a cleansing at the end. Some other commentators say, no, there was only one cleansing, but John takes that incident and he puts it here for dramatic effect because he wants to make the point about who Jesus is. It is in all four of the Gospels. It, it certainly happened. And we find that near uh, the time when Jesus is crucified, the high priest and the priests come to him and come to Jesus and say, you know, you claimed you were going to destroy the temple. Of course, he didn't say that. He said, you know, if you take down the temple, I will rebuild it. So all these accusations are around this time. So one cleansing, two cleansings. At the end of the day, it's the point that John is making is, what does this signify? What does it point to? What is the, the uniqueness of Jesus here? So it's Passover time. Jesus comes to the temple, and he finds it full of commerce and money changing and clamor, noise. In the words of Don Carson, instead of the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleating of sheep. Rather than a place of praise and prayer, it looks more like a marketplace. There's all this exchanging of money and so on. Now, actually, sacrifices, of course, were necessary. It was important that the, 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 the proper lambs and bulls and so on were bought, that they were without defect. There was a, a rule laid down that they had to present the appropriate temple tax in the approved currency. And so, as people came from other nations and maybe other places, they had to exchange the currency. So, there was a, a sense in which what they were doing was valid. The question was, where should it have been done? And what was happening was that it was being done probably in the outer court of the temple. But instead of encouraging people into a worshipful spirit, it was encouraging them just to think about money. It was becoming a whole system. It was becoming an institution. Now, no doubt the priests would say, well, look, what they're doing is a godly practice. It was necessary to exchange the money for the, the appropriate currency. It was necessary to buy animals for the sacrifices. The motivations are good, they say. But what was happening and what Jesus saw was that commerce and money were pushing out prayer and the proper approach to God. 
It was self-serving rather than God-serving. And fundamentally, it had become a distraction. Now, this can happen so easily in, in church even, can't it? In church life, in Christian life. In the revolution that has happened in our world, that also has impacted the church. And the church perhaps has sometimes got overly commercial. Christian authors, it's all about the book deals and signing books. There's the celebrity uh, worship that, that we've been listening to, some of these songs that we, that we listen to. Yeah, they're great songs, but sometimes the motivation behind them perhaps could be making money or creating a culture of celebrity. And of course, we have seen the celebrity pastor. Over recent years, we have seen the failing and the falling of those in the big, na the big names in the evangelical Christian world, and they have overreached themselves, and they have fallen. And God has had something to do with this, I'm sure. Pride has come before a fall. Now, we do not gloat or take pleasure in any of these things, but we note that God will have the glory. He will not give His glory to another. It is His church. It's not any human being's church or denomination. It is His church. And perhaps over recent years, God is weeding out this consumerism, this celebrity culture, because it was getting in the way of ordinary people who just want to worship God. Tragically and sadly, over the years, the church has been a place where there has been abuse, where there has been bullying, where there has been exploitation, and this should not be. And within a church context, I think it's particularly heinous, because what it does is it impacts the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. In effect, people say, well, look, if, if that's the way the church behaves, it's no different from the world. Why should I bother going to church? Why should I bother listening to that, that preacher? It harms the gospel. Jesus comes into this situation where He sees that the the worship of God, the, the pure worship of God is being hindered. What started off as a good practice is beginning to take over. It's becoming an institution. And in verse 17, it says, uh, as the disciples reflected on this incident, they remembered, zeal for your house. The prophet said, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had a, a zeal for the glory of God, for the purity of worship. And Jesus still has a zeal for what is done in His name, that it is done humbly, it is done in a right spirit, that it doesn't exploit people or make money out of people. But the temple system was becoming that. It was becoming a distraction. It was becoming a system in itself. It was losing its heart. It was losing its purpose. I remember some years ago, uh, Matt Redman, who one of the major worship leaders, he wrote a song, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And I understand that song was written at a time when he himself felt that the commercialism and all the recording deals and, and everything, it was pushing out the, the worship of God. It was becoming a, a system. It was becoming a business. And he was losing his heart. So he wrote this song, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you, Jesus. Forgive me, Lord, for what I have made it. It's all about you. It's all about you. 
And so he wrote that after a time of frustration with himself and frustration with uh, the worship industry as it had become. So we have to watch this. We have to keep refining. We have to keep purifying. We have to keep coming back to what it's all about. So Jesus comes into the situation. He, he, he sees that the temple and these practices are a distraction. They need to be purified and refined. But that's not actually the main point of this particular incident. It's not actually the main point of what John is trying to say through this. Because the main point is this, is whenever they come to Jesus and they see that he, what he is doing, and they say to him, can you prove to us what your authority is? Verse 18, can you give us a sign? Can you show us your authority for doing this cleansing? It's interesting that they didn't actually seem to object to what he was doing. They wanted to know what was the authority in which he was doing this In verse 16, note Jesus says, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? Note the my. How dare you turn my father's house? And there we see a signal of his authority. He's claiming divinity. He's putting himself in the same level as his father, God, my father's house, not our father's house. So here John is using this incident to again present us with the divinity of Jesus. And the priests say, give us, a, give us a miraculous sign. Give us a sign to show your authority. And he will. And, and he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jews find this incredible because this building of this Herod's temple had been built for 46 years, and it still hadn't been completed. And they say, you know, this temple has taken 46 years to reach this stage. And yet you say you're going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days? That, that is absolutely impossible. But of course, as the disciples reflected on this later, verse 22, it says, Jesus was talking about the temple of His body. That temple would be destroyed. That temple would rise again in three days. And that, for those who have the eyes to see, is the sign, it is the miracle to prove His authority. He would die, and He would rise again. And that, in a sense, is every bit as big a miracle as the stone temple being destroyed and the stone temple being built again in three days. Every bit as big a miracle. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, would say that the resurrection is the sign of signs. It's the ultimate miracle, human life being raised again. And Paul, in his letters and in his writing, says that this is the ultimate proof for the authority of the gospel. If Jesus is raised from the dead, everything changes. If He is not raised from the dead, we can close the churches, we can close our Bibles, we can stop the prayer meetings because it, it's a lie. There's no halfway house here. Either Jesus is who He says He is, He is alive today, that He was raised, or He is not. There's no halfway house here, folks. And, G and, and John, through Jesus at the beginning of this gospel, is throwing down the gauntlet. He's saying to the, the Jews then, and He's saying to us now, 
Remember this incident. Remember that Jesus will die, but Jesus will rise again. This is the authority for which He, he speaks. This is the authority that He has to cleanse this temple. And in effect, Jesus is also pointing to the fact that this temple is going to be replaced. This stone temple is going to be replaced by the temple of His body. Just as in the early part of John chapter 2, we see the replacement of water with the wine of Jesus representing the new life of Jesus. So here we see the temple being now replaced by Jesus, by the life of Jesus. A stone temple is going to be replaced by a living temple, Jesus Christ. The priesthood, the sacrificial system, the bills, the, the money exchanging, all this is going to be fulfilled and replaced in Christ, in effect, is what he's saying. The Jews were very much tied into the temple as the place where you could have the closest encounter with God. Come to the temple, they would say. It's the, the holy of holies. But even they were not allowed into the holy of holies. There were all these barriers to get to the holy of holies. The only one into the, the most holy place was, was the high priest once a year. Nobody else could get, even get into there. Even the, the Gentiles couldn't get beyond the outer court the lepers, the unclean, they weren't allowed beyond the outer court. They weren't allowed into the inner courts. But when Jesus came, He was more or less saying, all this is being replaced. And when He died, the veil, the veil in the temple was torn top to bottom. In effect, Jesus is saying, I am the new temple. I am the holy of holies. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way to get to the Father. It was nothing short than a, a, a complete revolution, a spiritual revolution. For, for thousands of years, things have been done this way, now they're going to be done this way. I'm going to out-temple the temple, in effect, is what Jesus is doing, and He has the, the authority to do this. The temple was His body, and through His body, all nations will come into the presence of God. This is, this is absolutely radical. The temple of Jerusalem was very much confined to one space and to one place, but after the resurrection, Jesus sends His Spirit. And now His temple is everywhere. All we have to do is to pray to Him, and we come to God the Father through the Son. The church will be a house of prayer for all nations and all peoples. And this is the fulfillment and the culmination of God's mission plan. So this clearing of the temple was Jesus, uh, it was a statement, Jesus saying, I have the authority. This is my Father's house. It is going to be fulfilled and cleansed and changed in me. Nothing is going to be the same again. So last week we saw Jesus taking six stone jars and bringing new wine out of them, representing abundant life and blessing. In this story, we see Him taking a stone temple and changing it and cleansing it from the inside. And again, it's the same point. I have the authority to do this. I am bringing something new, new life. 
Human beings can build their stone monuments, but ultimately God will have His way. And He has determined that a greater than the temple has come, and that is Jesus, the man from Nazareth who is the Son of God. And so many of them didn't see it. They didn't see what Jesus was saying. They didn't see His authority. And it's exactly the same today. They don't see who Jesus is. They don't see His authority. They don't see that He's the Son of God. I love, uh, one of the things I love to do is when I'm in England, is I love going to the, the cathedral cities. I love uh, visiting the cathedrals. They are, they are so beautiful. They're so magnificent. And in a sense, what they do is they kind of, they draw you upwards, don't they? And that was the point of them, to draw you up in worship. But at the end of the day, they're just buildings. They are stones, just like the temple. And, and sadly, if you, if you follow these things in the news even, you, you discover that a lot of these cathedrals are crumbling and their roofs need repaired and, and, and so on. And so much of the emphasis is on the building. We've got to protect the building. We've got to rebuild the building. We've got to stop the building from falling down, beautiful as it is. But there's no kind of reference to God. There's no reference to Jesus. It's all about the building. And that is a complete distraction. That's where we're starting to go wrong. Jesus says, it's all about me. I am the one you are to worship. Cathedrals and church buildings have their place, but they cannot distract from Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it seems to me that there is something wrong that these cathedrals are depending on tourists to keep them up. And the actual congregations who are meeting in them are dwindling and dwindling and dwindling away. There's something wrong. This temple in Jerusalem was the political, religious, and economic heart of Judaism. And Jesus comes to it, and He cleanses it. And they ask him, by what authority do you do this? He says, I have the authority from my heavenly Father. This is my Father's house. But you know what? Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And that was a prophetic word, and it happened. And for those who have eyes to see and those who have ears to hear, we see that Jesus is the new temple, and it is through him we come to God. At the end of this chapter, it says that some people give their, their hearts to Jesus. Some people says, I want to follow you. But even then, Jesus didn't give himself to them because he knows what's in a, a man's or a, a woman's heart. He knows that we can be very frivolous. We can be very vulnerable. We can say one thing one day and another another day. There needs to be a cost. There needs to be a surrender. And that will come for some of them, but some will fall away. What about you? What about me? We can sing the songs, and we're going to sing a song now, uh, a meaningful song. Christ be magnified. Christ be magnified in the altar of my life. But it's easy to sing a song. But what does that look like in practice? He must have it all. Christ be magnified. Let His praise arise. Christ be magnified 
in me. Christ be magnified from the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in me. Let's pray. Lord, we invite you by your Spirit to move from person to person, from pew to pew, and for us to ask in our own hearts, who is this Jesus, and has he authority over me, over the temple of my body? Help us, Lord, to avoid the distractions, the dilutions of a true heart in love with Jesus. So come, Holy Spirit. We thank you for this, your word. We pray, minister it to us and bring us to that place where we see Jesus as our temple, as our worship, as our praise, as our glory, today and forever, until that day when he calls us home. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.